Hey, good morning, FCF Church. Uh, wish I was there in person with you, but we're getting closer. Every week it's getting closer. We're continuing in our series called Turning Points, and uh, we've come to a place where we're now going to turn the next three messages in a different direction. The first three messages, the trajectory was toward a negative. People handled their turning points in a negative way. We, we started by looking at King, young King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, back in 930 B.C., he rejected the good counsel of the older elders around him and caused a split in the kingdom of Israel. Ten northern tribes separated, never to return again. Then we went fast forward 208 years and we looked at where did that northern kingdom go and develop under its first ruler, Jeroboam. He was one of 19 kings. They all walked away from God. And finally, God had to call it quits with working with them as well and allowed the Assyrians to deport them in 722 BC. Once again, a mishandled turning point, mishandled by Rehoboam, mishandled by the Northern Kingdom for 208 years, God kept pleading with them. Then last week, we zeroed in on the Southern Kingdom because even after the Assyrians had overrun the Northern Kingdom of Israel and taken them into deportation, captivity, for 136 years more, God pleaded with the Southern Kingdom to return to Him with their hearts, to trust Him, to obey Him. But finally, they too, because of the hardness of their hearts, they were also deported by the Babylonians, and their temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. So these are kind of some big dates. As you're reading Scripture to put some things together, 930, the kingdom splits. 722, the ten northern tribes go into the Assyrian captivity, never to return again. 586, the temple is destroyed by Babylon. And for 70 years, the Israelites go into exile in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah the prophet had warned them for some 21 years that if they didn't return to God, this would happen. And he specifically told them they would be there for 70 years. We're going to pick up the story today at the end of that 70 years. But here's what I really want to start talking to you about today. We all probably have heard the stories. There are just so many of them. Usually they're celebrity stories about the celebrity. It could be the rock star. It could be the movie star, whatever it is. But they talk about their past. They went through a time where, you know, their fame and their fortune, maybe it went to their head, maybe the money, whatever it is. But they just lived what they would say. I was just living insane. I look back at my life. I, I was living crazy. The things that I did, the places that I went, the way I spent my time, the way I spent my money, the way I handled people and relationships. And they'll, they'll sometimes talk about the drugs and the alcohol abuse and all these things. We're used to the stories. And then the story usually goes, the ones that are still alive, it is the story usually goes at some point they say, and then I kind of came to my senses and my sanity. I started living a sane life. And the ones that are still effective today, they, in many cases, they, they've been living a more sane life, we'll call it, for decades in some cases now. Now, celebrities, that's one thing. But here's the thing that I want you to consider. I wonder if you have a very similar story. I, I have similar story. Most of us probably can look back at a time in our life. If you really look carefully and objectively, a time in your life where when you look at it now, you're like, I don't know what was going through my mind. I, I, I don't even understand what I was thinking. I, I, don't, I don't even want to think about it too much, but I just was crazy. I was just not in my right mind. I was kind of in a loss of sanity. Now, 
We're not talking about mental illness at all. We're talking about periods in our life where our recklessness, our impulsiveness, our, our emotion, desire-driven living, our following the crowd, our experimentation with things that we think will be pleasurable, pleasurable, we look back now and we say, man, I was just insane. I was a crazy person. I can look back at times like that in my life. Perhaps you can too. Well, we're going to see the Israelites now coming out of a time when they refused to listen to the pleadings of God for 136 years after they had seen their brothers in the northern tribe be taken into the Assyrian captivity. That was insanity. What made them think that God would allow them to continue to misrepresent Him? He couldn't. He couldn't do that. The rest of the world, He, he owed um, a vital, accurate representation of Himself. And, and the Israelite nation had made a covenant to do that. So they were living insane, and finally, to break the cycle of insanity, God lets them go into Babylon, and they are there for 70 years. And these stories that we hear, maybe your story, maybe we had to hit the wall, we had to hit rock bottom, we hear that term a lot of times, we, we, we had to kind of exhaust ourselves in various ways and start to deal with some significant consequences. But in many cases, it brings us to our senses. Jesus told a parable, the prodigal, uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15. And in that parable, he talks about this young rascal son who goes to his dad before the dad is even sick and says he wants his inheritance, much less dead. The dad knows he's up to no good, but he gives it to him anyway. The son goes, blows the inheritance very quickly and wild living, ends up starving to death envious of what the pigs were eating. And then the scripture says he came to his senses. Sanity came back. He had been living insane. Now sanity came back. He says, what am I doing here? Starving, envying the pig food. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm not going to even try to tell him that I'm worthy to be his son. I'm just going to try to see if he'll take me on as his servants. Because even the servants at my dad's place live better than what I'm living now. Sanity return. In our turning point today, we're going to look at a time where sanity returned to the Israelites. So now that turning point trajectory, it's not going to turn in a negative fashion. It's going to turn in a positive fashion. The next three messages, we're going to see people at their turning point who handle the turning points correctly and the trajectory goes in a positive direction, as I hope will be the case for each and every one of us. The whole purpose of this series, I know that God wants that for each and every one of us. So let me pick up reading now in the book of Ezra. So I'm going to start in Ezra chapter 1. And to get you a time frame, uh, when we start here, it's 539 B.C. The first wave of the Babylonian invasion took place around 609 B.C. It's now 539. That's 70 years. Interesting. But the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. We will find out later in another message that the temple isn't rebuilt until 516 B.C. Interesting, exactly 70 years. What did Jeremiah prophesy about the Israelites when he pleaded with them for 21 years, turn back to God, or you'll go into exile in Babylon for 70 years. So anyway, it's 70 years since the first Babylonian wave. It came in three waves, the invasion, the final one being in 586. It's 539 B.C., and there's one other really interesting thing I, I want to tell you about. Well, well let, me, let me read and then, then I'll tell you, tell you what I was going to. Here we go. Chapter 1. 
in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, keep that name in mind, Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. What an astounding thing. This is, this is a Persian king. And he says that God, the God that had identified himself, revealed himself to the Jews so that he could reveal himself through the Jews to the world. This Persian king says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone, listen to this verse carefully, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Two times we read this. this it says that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Then it says, anyone, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and rebuild the, the temple in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to take you to just a couple other passages. In chapter 3, they at this point have arrived. They have been back in Jerusalem for seven months. It says, when the seventh month, chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they start rebuilding first the, the altar. They want to establish worship, the worship of God once again. Let me take you quickly to verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. We'll stop right there. So here we have this, this extraordinary picture that I hope is going to be so personal to you by the time this message is over that it will be uh, not only personally helpful for you to, to kind of understand and and pick apart some of your history and some of the experiences you've had, but also perhaps to help somebody else as well. We see the people of Israel going from an insane existence where the northern kingdoms rejected God's word and will, the southern kingdom rejected his word and will again and again, to now they return to sanity. So, what's the first thing we see happening to them? And these experiences are true of anyone that does what I'm going to call returning to sanity. And here's what I mean. Folks, if there is one true creator God that's created the entire universe and who has made all life that is in the universe and who has revealed himself and revealed himself as loving and good and who has good and holy and wonderful purposes, better than the deepest desires of our heart, then it is utter insanity to neglect this God, particularly if He has left compelling evidences of His presence and His goodness, and He has. Nothing could be more insane than to live as though such a God does not exist when He has left compelling evidences of His power, but His almighty sacrificial goodness. He's the safest person, the most beautiful person, the best person in the universe. And to live as though He does not exist or to live as though He is inconsequential, it is the epitome of an insane existence. 
we are dependent upon him for our next brain wave and our every breath. It's just that he's so gracious, he doesn't force this to our attention again and again. So every return to sanity starts with an awakening. And the awakening comes to the Israelites after 70 years of living in, in captivity and exile in Babylon. Suddenly, just like Jeremiah prophesied, God starts speaking to them again. God starts making them aware. It's time now. It's time. My people, I know you've had time to learn the lesson. And now I know you're ready to listen to me again. I know the time is right. It took time. Folks, I don't, I don't know if you can go back in your own experience and think about it, but sometimes in my experience, my head was too hard to listen to God. And God patiently, gently, kindly has had to wait me out or let me experience the stupidity of my own behavior. My own insanity becomes its, its best punishment and puts me into a place where I'm more of a condition to listen to a God that I should have listened to in the first place instead of insisting on my own will. So awakenings, it started when God, it says that, that God spoke through Jeremiah. He spoke to Cyrus, this Persian king, and he spoke to the people of God. He, those that, that moved, their hearts were moved when they heard Cyrus proclaim, the God, the God who was your God, the God who protected you and provided for you, the God who created you as a people and a, and a, and a nation, the God who allowed you finally to go into exile into Babylon for 70 years, just as he promised. He's now ready and he knows that you're going to be ready to awaken to him and to walk with him once again. And it says all whose hearts moved them, they got ready to leave uh, that long, long journey from Persia, depending on where they were at, especially that long, long journey from Iran all the way back to Jerusalem. So here's the thing that we need to tuck away. Uh, whenever there is a true spiritual awakening, suddenly God's Word becomes relevant, personally relevant to us again. We can go through periods where, you know, we, we might still you know, uh, think about God's Word. We may still hear God's Word, but we have blocked our hearing. We are somewhat deaf to God's Word. We hear it, but we don't hear it, meaning that we hear it, but we don't take it seriously. But when we're awakened, spiritually awakening, mark this one down. One of the number one things that marks a spiritual awakening is God's Word now becomes personally relevant to me. These people heard God says it's time to go back and rebuild the temple, and they got ready to move. About 50,000 of them roused themselves up and went back. The second thing that happens in a true spiritual awakening is that God's Word not only becomes personally relevant to me, it becomes personally dynamic to me. What do you mean, Randy, personally dynamic? I mean, not only am I listening to God speak to me, I want to hear what He has to say to me again. I didn't maybe want to hear from Him for a long time. I wanted to go my own way and do my own thing. But now, when spiritual awakening comes, I want Him to speak to me again. I, I really want to hear His Word to me and now it moves me dynamically. I am yielded to it. I want to do His will. I've had enough of my will. I wonder if some of you, I wonder if some of you, you can just hear that ring in your ears. You've had enough of your own will. You've experienced enough of the fruits or the, the consequences of your own will that you're now ready to hear God, His Word is personal and relevant to you, but it's also dynamic. In other words, you're not just going to hear God's Word. You're not just going to observe it. You're not just going to understand it and interpret it. You are going to internalize it, and it's going to start to motivate you. It's going to move you. They didn't just hear this decree 
to go back to Jerusalem to make that long journey and to go back. They actually got up. They left their vocations. They left their homes. They left their families in some cases and friends. They took this long, arduous journey. A lot of these people, folks, they, they had probably built very good lives for themselves in the Babylonian Empire. We have an example of it of Daniel, who was a, a tremendous statesman through the whole time, uh, the entire era of the Babylonian captivity, right up to when the Persians took over. At any rate, true spiritual awakening, the sign of it, is that God's Word becomes personally relevant. He's speaking to me, and I want to hear Him. And not only is it relevant to me, it's dynamic. I want to do what He wants me to do. Listen to this verse. It's one of my favorite from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.13, speaking about the dynamic, the energy release that occurs when our trust is in God and in His Word. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and this is the, uh, the, the pa Passion Version, it says, This is why we continually thank God for your lives, because you, when you received our message wholeheartedly, you embraced it not as the fabrication of men, but as the Word of God. And the Word continues to be, listen to this, an energizing force in you who believe. When we trust in God, when His Word is personally relevant to us, when His Word is personally dynamic in us because we trust Him, it releases energy in us. We not only hear His command, we are motivated, we are inspired, we are filled with His energy to do the things that He commands us to do. And so this is what the case was, again, in this spiritual awakening with these Israelites. The first step, the first step to returning to sanity is I awaken again to God's Word. It's personally relevant to me. I want to hear Him speak to me. I, I, know, I know now, I've learned my lesson, I need it. And when He speaks, I'm going to do what He says. It's going to become a fire. It's going to become energy. It's going to become motivation. I'm going to move on what God says. The second stage in returning to sanity is the very return itself. Now, for these guys, they were in Persia, depending on where they were at, which is modern-day Iran. It would have been over a thousand-mile journey. And they didn't just like hop into their, their car and drive, which would have still been a long drive. No, you're talking on foot and perhaps with some cattle and, and things of that nature. This was rough. There was, there was endless dangers along the way. There were obstacles. It, it was a, a very difficult, arduous journey. So this was no small thing to return to Jerusalem from various places in the Persian Empire. So the first part of a spiritual awakening, uh, excuse me, the first part of returning to sanity is an awakening. The second part is actually returning. Leaving from far. You know, there, there's just a reality. Wherever we have been in our past, whatever we have fallen into, whatever lifestyle we have experimented with, if it's one that is contrary to God's perfectly good will for us, which is always really for our good and our best, then we have to be willing to leave it. God cannot help us unless we are willing to leave behind the old life. All through Scripture, you see this. I mean, you, you go back to the earliest one that God calls out, Abraham in chapter 12. Abraham is living in early Chaldees, and God says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave it all behind, and I want you to follow me. Jesus was, was known to say again and again, follow me. It's, it must be so. We, we have to be willing to leave. They had to leave the familiar lifestyle that they had built for themselves in Babylon and make this long, journey full of danger, full of obstacles, full of discomfort, 
Okay, you got to hear me now. The journey back to God, the journey back to sanity for some of us, we've burnt a lot of bridges. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've, we've amassed a lot of consequences. We've internalized a lot of hurts. We've given a lot of hurts, perhaps. And that journey back to sanity, it's not necessarily going to be easy. The longer we've been away, the further we've been away from God, the harder, frankly, the journey's going to be. But it's worth the effort, and effort it, it must, there must be. There must be the, the determination. I'm going to get back to God. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care how far it is. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what I have to go through. I'm going to get back to God. I, I'm not even certain what that's going to look like, but I am going to take the risk, and I'm going to make the journey. That's a picture of sanity. Listen, listen to this from the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 22. The NIRV version, it says, You were taught not to live the way you used to. Listen to that carefully, folks. You were taught, we were taught in Jesus, Jesus' life and model and teaching, not to live the way we used to when we were just living on our own, doing what we wanted, when we wanted, how we wanted. You must get rid of your old way of life. It's always the same. Returning to sanity means I've got to get rid of my old way of life. God can't help me as long as I insist on my old way. You were taught not to live the way you used to. You must get rid of your old way of life. That's because it has been made impure by the desire for things that lead you astray. They made the long journey. They, they had to leave wherever they were at from far to get back to the place of the center of God's will. I want to share a little thing that I wrote down, and it's a simple phrase, but it's a truism. You can't get somewhere new unless you're willing to leave somewhere old. You can't get somewhere new unless you're willing to leave somewhere old. Now, it's hard to leave somewhere old. The somewhere old becomes comfortable. The somewhere old becomes predictable. The, the somewhere old becomes sometimes addictive. The somewhere old creates lots of complicated connections that may have to be broken and, and numerous problems. But you can't, and I can't. God can't bring us back to sanity. We can't go somewhere new. And God always wants to take us somewhere new, always. Unless we're willing to leave somewhere old. Maybe God has been nudging someone for many, many years, many, many months perhaps, that you've got to leave the old life behind. There, there's some facet of the old life that you've insisted on carving out. And you know it's not God's will. You know it's contrary to His Word. But he's now pleading with you once again. The only way you get back to sanity, you've got to take the long journey. You've got to be willing to leave the old life behind. You can't go somewhere new unless you're willing to leave somewhere old. The second part of returning is drawing near. You see, as they were taking this thousand-mile journey, every step, every mile, they were getting a little closer to the center of God's will again. They were getting a little closer to Jerusalem, the place where God eternally put His name. Listen, they can debate all they want in the Middle East about who owns Jerusalem. God said it is His. His name is on it, and He gave it to His people, the Jews, not because they deserved it, but because that's the agreement He made with them. And so, they're moving from Persia, and they're, they're going mile after mile, and hundred a mile after hundred a mile, and it's arduous, and it's difficult, and it's full of uncertainty, and they're uncomfortable, but they're drawing close to God. You've got to hear what I'm saying. When you and I, because of an insane period in our life, and by insane, I'm not meaning mental illness, I'm just saying we were just living crazy. When we start to return to God, 
drawing close to him, it's going to take some effort. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take some determination. It's going to take some reestablishment of some priorities and some practices and some habits and some healthy connections. And we have to just keep moving closer to God. Listen, one of the, one of the greatest examples of returning to sanity or one of the greatest models or pictures of returning to sanity is we get spiritually awakened and then we start to move toward God. And we have a desire. It's a new desire in our hearts. I want to be close to God again. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what I have to go through. I want to be as close to my God as I possibly can be. There is an authentic desire for God. It's not to get God to bail me out or do something for me. It's Him. I want Him. I want to be close to Him again. I want to be in the center of His will. I want to be His person. I want to be His child once again. I want to get back to whatever Jerusalem is for you. I want to get back to that place, that place that God wants me to, and I'm going to draw near to God. Listen to this simple verse from James chapter 4, verse 8 in the New Testament. This, once again, is the Passion Version. It says, Move your heart closer and closer to God, for He will come even closer and closer to you. Listen to that carefully because that, that, that gives such an insight to the way God deals with us. It says, you, me, we have to move closer to God first before He moves closer to us. Why? Why is that? It's because He doesn't want a relationship built on intimidation. He wants a relationship that's authentic. He wants a relationship that He reveals Himself as loving, as kind, as patient, as merciful, as always for our, our good. But then He waits for us. The door handle, the lock is on our side. He waits for us to draw near to Him. Then He gently, lovingly draws near to us. He wants us. He tells us that. But He waits for us. Let me read it to you again. It's, it's a very powerful concept. Move your heart closer and closer to God, for He will come even closer and closer to you. But make sure you cleanse your life, you sinners, and keep your heart pure and stop doubting. When we move closer to God, we can't have ambivalence. When it says doubting, it means that I'm going to draw close to God, but I still think I'm going to keep that part of my life that I like a certain way, and I'm not really going to let God have His way, and that, that, that's, again, just a bit more insanity. You can't regain sanity if you insist on holding on to insanity. Living contrary to the will of our loving Creator, the one who knows what's best and wants what's best, it's, it's insanity. We, we become our own worst enemy. So returning involves leaving from afar, and then drawing near to God. And there's one last step in regaining sanity. First there's awakening, then there's returning, and then there's serving. So the people get back there to Jerusalem, and what do they do? They start to build the altar of God. They, they, they get to work. They start serving God. They start establishing worship again. Now, ultimately, the goal is to build the temple. And seven months in, they're not anywhere near that. There's no foundation of the temple being laid. But at least they're establishing worship again. And so they're rolling up their sleeves. They didn't go back to Jerusalem just to sit there and just hope for God to do something special and miraculous for them. They didn't expect to go back to Jerusalem and God just have all the walls pop up in place or go back to Jerusalem and God just instantaneously builds the temple for them. They knew that's not God's way of working. God casts a vision to His people and invites us into it. And He waits for it to move our hearts 
and he waits to work through those whose hearts are moved with authentic affection for him, authentic affection for his righteousness, for his good purposes in this world and in the world to come. And so the, the third step in regaining sanity, first I awaken, then I return, and then I start to serve God again. They got back to Jerusalem, they rolled up their sleeves, and they got to work. Now there's two parts of serving God that are critical. I have to, first of all, discern God's purpose. Now they had a crystal clear picture. Jeremiah had revealed that after 70 years they were to return, and God had spoken to Cyrus, this Persian ruler, and said, you guys are to go back and build the temple. God wants me to build the temple, but He wants me to build the temple through you. Any of you that has your heart moved, go back, and I'll provide materials and that kind of a thing. So they had a crystal clear picture of what God's purpose was for them. Their purpose was to ultimately rebuild the temple of God, the, the central place that God was to reveal Himself to the rest of the world. But for us today, it's different. We're not to build a temple today, but we are. If we're going to be servants of God, we need to discern His purpose. I just can't just carve out what I think is serving God. I must see what He says is the most important, beneficial thing going on in the world today, the thing that He wants me to be invested in. So what does it say? Real simple, Matthew 16, 18, these words of Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. That word church there doesn't mean brick and block and steel. It is a Greek word, ekklesia. It means assembly. I will build my called out. The word ek is, is really means called out. I'll build my called out assembly. God is calling out people by the revelation He's given of Himself in Christ. And any that are attracted to God's truest nature, His fullest revelation in Christ, any of us that are drawn to Him, put our trust in Him, become His followers, want to follow Him, want to be like Him because we like Him and love Him, then we become a part of this assembly, this called out assembly. God calls us through the message of who God really is in Christ. I will build my church, said Jesus, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. We have seen an assault from the dark forces from Jesus' day until now, and they get worse and worse, but nevertheless, all over the world, when the message of Christ goes forth, one here, one there, one over there, will be drawn to Him, will be drawn back to put their trust in Him and become His follower and to follow Him fully and to follow Him freely and to follow Him forever. That's what it really means to be a Christian, folks. A Christian is one that follows Jesus fully. I trust Him, so I want to do His will. And I'm following Him freely. I'm not following Him because I'm afraid of Him. I'm not following Him because I'm trying to earn heaven. No, no, no. I'm following Him freely. He has won my confidence, won my trust, and I'm going to follow Him forever. All I want to do is follow my loving Creator because He has proven Himself the most beautiful, the most trustworthy, the most worthy person in the universe. That, that's what's the heartbeat of a Christian. So we need to discern God's purpose. For them it was to build a temple. For us it is to build a church. How is Jesus building His church? Well, He tells us in Matthew 28, He tells each of us, He says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's a follower. Make disciples. He didn't say make decisions or get people to make decisions. He said make disciples of all nations. Once they become a disciple, then He said baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then He says you got to do more after they're baptized. Then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And He says, and here's my promise to you, I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. That is how Jesus is building His assembly today. It is as you and I go out and we reach out to others and we seek to bring them closer to Christ and reveal the truth about God and the truth about life to them. And then as they put their trust in Christ, we help them grow. We, we put some, help them put some structure in their life so that they can learn the Word of God and do the will of God and serve God to continue to build His church up. And so there's two parts of serving. I must discern God's purpose, but then I've got to also discern my part. I am not to do everything. Those individuals that went back to Jerusalem, you'll see they divided up their duties when it came time to build the temple. Uh, later on, when it came time to build the walls, they, they divided duties up. I am not to do everything, but I can and I must do something. You are equipped uniquely to do something that I can't do. I am equipped uniquely for something you can't do. The scripture says that God puts us together kind of like a human body. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. And uh, I'm reading from Romans 12, 5 and 6. It says, So in Christ, though many, we form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then 1 Peter 4, 10, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so I have to, first of all, have a discernment of God's purpose. But once I know what God's purpose is, then I need to have a discernment of my part in His purpose. I need to figure out what has He uniquely equipped me for? What spiritual gifting has He given me? What talents has He given me? What unique experiences has He given me? What sort of a social context has He put me in? What sort of entrustments has He given me that might be leveraged to help build up His kingdom, serve others in the, the hope that they will become united with Him in His purpose, <coughs> Uh, in their developmental journey to become more and more like Christ. What is my part in that particular service is what I need to find. Now I want to just pause and ask this question. If we want to do a sanity checkup, okay, let's pause and walk through it a little bit. Sanity checkup. Am I awakened to God's Word? Is God's Word personally relevant to me? Is God's Word personally dynamic in me? I not only want to hear everything that He says, whether, whether it runs contrary to my lifestyle or not, but when He speaks, I am motivated to change. I am motivated to do it. Am I sane because I'm returning to God? I'm always moving from those places where I was far away from God, I am moving closer and closer. I want to draw closer to Him. I am seeking Him in every way that I can in everything that I do. Am I drawing closer? Sanity. Am I awakened? Am I returning? And then finally, am I serving? Am I finding the purpose of God for this time and this age? And am I finding my part, just like a member of the body, there's eyes, and eyes do one thing, and a mouth does another, and hands do another. Am I finding my place, my giftedness, my unique equippedness to serve God's purpose of building His church during this age? Now I want to close with an illustration that I hope is not too distant to, um, to be effective. Um, there is a man that some of you will be very familiar with and, and, and some of you will not. His name is James Stockdale. And James Stockdale uh, was a naval pilot. He, he, he was a very high-ranking officer in the Navy. He had flown over 200 combat missions. And in 1960, 1965, he was shot down over Vietnam. 
He was taken into a prison camp. He parachuted out, found himself in a little Vietnamese village, and they took him prisoner in the famous or infamous Hanoi Hilton. He had the distinction of being a prisoner of war longer than anyone. Nearly eight years he was there. They tortured him terribly. He wouldn't break. He built up his other captors there with him. He gave them courage. Nothing they could do could break this guy. They broke his bones. They put him in irons. They put him in four years of isolation. At one point, when they were trying to get information out of him to refuse them, he literally slit his own wrists to show them, I will die before I will give you any information. So this goes on, it goes on. He lives in this insanity, this imposed insanity. They put this man through one year, two years, three years, never knowing if it was ever going to end. It goes on, like I said, for nearly eight years. And then the word comes, just like the word came to these Israelites, it's time, after 70 years, it's time. If you want to move, it's time to move. If you want to come back to me, it's time to come back. He gets word after nearly eight years that there's a hope, and finally, a truth of, of a release. He gets released February 1973. I, I saw the pictures. I saw the pictures when he was a young uh, jet pilot, you know, in the Navy, a uh, very fit-looking guy. And I saw the pictures. When they brought him back home, and he was a, a decrepit, emaciated, looking person. It, it, was, it was truly, truly sad. He, he was, it was a long journey. That journey from Vietnam after nearly eight years being tortured in a prison camp, isolation for four years, that journey from that insanity back to sanity here in this country was a long, long journey. He had to take a long journey psychologically. He had to take a long journey physically. He had to take a long journey relationally and vocationally, but he did. He did. He made the journey. He made the effort. He, he determined to recover sanity, to recover his life. And he comes back. He spends another six years uh, you know, in the Navy. He retires after 32 years of service. He goes and serves um, at Citadel for, for, I think, a year, year and a half. And after that, he goes on for, to Stanford for about 12 years or so. Uh, him and his wife end up writing a book about the experience. It gets made into a movie. And he even was a vice president, presidential candidate with Ross Perot. Some of you might remember that. The poor guy, it was an unfortunate thing. He had hearing aids because these monsters that had him in captivity had burst his eardrums and destroyed his hearing, and it, it created an embarrassing situation for him. Anyway, this noble guy, he came back from all of that, and he gave the rest of his life in service. He, he didn't come back and just lick his wounds. He was not bitter. In fact, he taught philosophy. He was a brilliant man. And he finally ended his life in 1982. He, he did succumb finally to Alzheimer's and his life ended. But he just gives a little depiction of this, this long journey from insanity to sanity. Now, let you and I, let you and I just stop for a moment and ask ourselves, could it be that there is some pocket of insanity that we have kept alive in our life and a loving God, a tender-hearted God, a God who wants our good and our highest happiness and well-being more than we do, is calling today, just like He called to those Israelites back then, you're at a turning point. 
It's a turning point. You can turn the course. You can change your trajectory. Hear my voice. Awaken to my voice today. Let it become relevant to you once again. Let it become dynamic in you once again. Awaken to me. I want you to return. Come back to me. Leave the old life behind. I can't help you if you won't let go of the past. You've got to let it go. You've got to come back. You've got to make the long journey no matter what it takes. And once you get back into that place, the center of my will, you have such an exciting journey ahead of you. I've equipped you. I have given you experiences. I have given you spiritual gifts. I have given you talents. I have given you resources. I am going to put you in a circle of influence, uh, people that you'll influence and be influenced by so that you can serve meaningfully until the kingdom comes. And my will is finally done on this earth as it is in heaven. Could it be that some of you, this is your day. This is your moment. It was their moment. The Spirit of God was speaking to Cyrus. The Spirit of God was speaking to some of the Israelites. Mind you, only 50,000 of them were moved. There were probably a million or so that were in the captivity. We can only hope they moved later on because there were waves that came back. But what really counts is, are you and I the one that God is calling back to sanity today? This might be your critical turning point. Let's pray. Father, you know. You know better than anyone. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know how resistant we can be. You know how crazy we can be in holding on to things that only hurt us and only hold, hurt others. May your Spirit just so speak in the depths of our heart and soul that we will not just be awakened, but we will make the long journey. We will return, and we won't just return. We will roll up our sleeves, and we will serve you, the living God, for the rest of our lives. We will be immovable, steadfast, ever serving you for the rest of our lives. I ask all these things in Christ's holy name, and I thank you. Amen.